Hi there, it's Rob. Um, just wanted to quickly say if you're happen to be getting oh, Siri. You were saying I'm trying to record my podcast. Um, I was saying if you happen to be getting started with this podcast, then welcome. Thanks for spending some of your time on whatever this is. Feel free to jump around different episodes. There's no order or connection between them except for this one. So I uh, just wanted to let you know that this is a part two of two, and you'll get a little bit more introduction from Alex in the first part. Um, and so in this episode, we do talk about new music, modern music, and uh, it's most likely not your usual preference. So uh, try and hold back on the fast forward button and just give some of the little clips that we play a chance and feel free to join in the discussion with what you think on Twitter or Telegram. You can find that info on our website or in the show notes. Here's part two of my chat with Alex Monroe, Chicago-based percussionist from the ensemble Beyond This Point. feel like you're you're someone who could be a pretty good advocate for like getting into new music and um you can use me as like the proxy of other podcast listeners um and we were talking while you were visiting about new music you showed me this clip on youtube that you have of <clears throat> one of those pieces that and i thought was pretty cool it sounded really interesting um kind of mesmerizing i guess i would describe it um but you know typically people don't listen to new music when i say new music i'm not talking about pop music obviously yeah <laughs> contemporary i don't know what what other words you would you would put to to describe new music yeah i think um contemporary music or new music are the most widely used names for it in in it's the field but um i would say that there are a number of great gateways um into that uh, minimalism is a big one so minimalism is maybe some people are familiar more familiar with minimalism and like visual art where there's like just repetitive objects or shapes um and patterns like a, a Rothko or something right or yeah or the absence of uh, uh-huh. a lot of detail right it's it's not like a, a highly detailed thing it's more about the the multiplicity of things so um in music that manifests through very repetitive rhythm um this is a genre that kind of came up alongside rock and roll actually so i think the the two actually influenced each really? other quite a bit I didn't... um yeah it came up in like the 50s and 60s really um so it's very repetitive um some great people i would recommend checking out are steve reich um and he's got a piece that a great intro piece called Electro Counter Electro uh, Electric Counterpoint. Sorry, would be a great one to check out. As well as another more contemporary one called Mallet Quartet. 
And these you'll find are, you'll probably think you're like listening to like an IBM commercial. <laughs> because that, because that's like how minimalism has now like infiltrated everything. So it's really common that you'll hear minimalist music in advertising um, or in movies and not even know you're hearing it, but it's, it's very common. It kind of, to to me at least, um, it can signify um, an intellectual moment, kind of like a percolating thought, um, where it doesn't dominate the scene, you know, where like a strong melody might, but it's there and it's kind of like, you know, the insight moments in terms of film that you would use that type of minimalist stuff. Right, it's more about it's, it. Sort of curates a setting rather than a plot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Would <laughs> you, you kind of get inside of it and live in it? Would you put Philip Glass over there? Where would you yes. put him? Okay. Yeah, Philip Glass is there, although he's um, a little bit more. Uh, how to explain it? Philip Glass and Steve Rice differ in that Steve Rice is very repetitive with um, like constant rhythm. Um, like think like very pulsating rhythm and Philip Glass I find is more um, repetitive in like shapes so like he'll have like a melody that's like um, going like like up and down up and down up and down up and down right right and so that's kind of where I see the the difference between the two of those maybe I'll splice in some examples as we talk about this yeah that would be great Another great uh, composer to check out who's considered a post-minimalist uh, would be David Lang. And I find his music as it's not very challenging harmonically, meaning mm-hmm. that you'll really you'll you'll have the same feelings you have uh, with whatever music you currently listen to. It's very consonant. It uses um, uh, or it, it, it uses consonants and dissonance in a way that is very common. For instance, so like if you hear like some very uh, like think about how like a, a movie ends that's like very happy and it's got like a, a it's what we call a major chord at the end and it's very resolute uh-huh. and nice right you'll have that feeling of resoluteness and you'll also have like discordant feelings when you hear certain pitches so it's not challenging in the way that like oh you should just treat every note the same and we can use any note at any time it's it's uh-huh. not like that um it's it instead uses repetition and different sound qualities different timbres of instruments to to be the point of interest so it's not trying to challenge you in that way it's challenging Mm, interesting just to hear new qualities of sounds So uh, another quiz. Where would you then? The way what you just described sounds almost like the opposite of like Schoenberg. Where would you put yes. that? 
where, where does that fall? When, when I was in my, I had this like music 101 class in college, which was a pretty fun survey of musical genres. I've since forgotten most of it, but um, I believe they called him and some others like Berg or whatever in this like second Viennese school. Um, but yeah. I don't know what that really meant. <laughs> so, so yeah, Schoenberg and Berg were pioneers of a type of music called 12 tone music, which um, typically, I don't want to turn this into like a huge music theory podcast, but music typically revolves around, um, well, Western music, I should say, revolves around scales. So there's like major scales and minor scales, and they use eight notes of the right. available 12 so like you, you imagine a piano like, right? right and the mm -hmm. just the interject so on a piano the you know typical like c major is very easy and it's just all these white keys from c to c yeah, c d e f g a b c so right. you have eight notes right and if you're gonna talk about 12 tone music that means we're let's let's throw in all those black keys too, and to me, I'm, I'm guessing I would think of that as chromatic. Maybe there's a difference. Yeah, sort of. So in um, with going back to the major scale, each of those eight notes has a there's like a hierarchy of its importance. Mm. So in a C major scale, as you were just describing, the C is the most important note, and it's the point that you expect to arrive at at the end of the piece. Um, the next most important note would be the fifth note of the scale G. And then from there, there's the fourth note and then the third note. There's like, you can probably uh, vary the importance of the rest of the notes, but there's a certain, there's a definite hierarchy of what okay. notes are important and how the notes lead back and forth to each other. In 12 tone music, that has been abolished completely and instead replaced with an artificially created uh, pattern. So you'll take all 12 notes and you decide a random order of them or a fixed order, but that order is not based on their uh, the hierarchy of the previously used major scale that we're You're all just used playing to. Yahtzee. And you just <laughs> yeah. Boom. All right. So C is going to be the second most important and D is the most important. And so we're going to construct something based on this randomly generated rule set. Right, and it often follows the same order constantly through the music. Um, so you are able to attach yourself to certain uh, melodies that are based on orders of notes. But the problem that I find with it and why I think people had a lot of trouble with it is that we, for centuries, had become used to this system of hearing music. <clears throat> and 12-tone asked you to hear it in a completely different way. So you, you would hear these like wide, like big jumps from like note to another note, which normally would signify some tension. Yeah. Except that the 12 tone composers did not expect you to feel tension. But it's, it's like, it's like ingrained the in fuck you. were you they expecting? Well, <laughs> I mean, I can see what they were trying to do, which was to, they would call it liberate you from having to hear things in this. They're trying to be the way. Alan Watts of composers. <laughs> 
I don't Every, know if that's everything true. is connected. <laughs> everything is musical, no matter what the hierarchy is. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting. You brought that up. Actually, I would put Cage. John Cage is more of the Alan Watts, which okay. is really exploding yeah. it out to not just that all notes have equal importance, but all sounds have equal importance. And actually, John Cage had a lot more success, in my opinion, than Schoenberg. He was actually, I believe, he was a student of Schoenberg's. Oh, really? For a while, but. He had more success because people he he didn't try to remove the foundational elements of music or some of them that we were also used to. So rhythm was the one that he usually like was um, primarily focused on. He wrote a lot of percussion music, mm-hmm. and instead of like trying to say, "Well, let's mess with harmony," let's really like you know switch it up. Let's just take different sounds. So you would have pieces for tin cans or for other found objects, and this is where percussion music that i play now really got its start and it turns out that people don't really care too much what's making the sound if they can number one understand the rhythm and understand the lines of the melodies like that that part it seems to be more important than what's actually making the sound so a violin is beautiful makes a beautiful sound but it's not actually necessary um as much as the rhythms that we're used to and the melodies that we're used to Okay. So the timbre of the instrument, the way it sounds, is less important than the musical components. In that, in his opinion, and in my opinion, there would be so many people who would completely disagree with me and say I'm a heathen. Yeah, yeah. Me, but you know. Well, whatever. don't worry. No one. I, d- I doubt anyone knows what we're talking about at this point. <laughs> probably just yeah. totally lost everyone. You um, probably have like one PhD music theory listener. It's like <laughs> just irate in his chair right now. Yeah. I'm kind of torn with this podcast of like, I, I I want everyone to be on board and like, you know, following where I'm going. But, um, I also, you know, so I want to like pause and explain stuff. But on the other hand, I also feel like this is just two people having a conversation and you're listening in. So, you know, if this isn't your thing, I'm sure you can fast forward. So I don't really know, uh, what kind of shape to to take the podcast but i think on on the note of john cage just for people who probably aren't you know familiar like like i am i would say his his most famous one is uh four minutes 33 seconds and um you can fill in some more detail but to me what i had heard is that this is a piece where it's four and a half minutes 33 seconds of silence and they would bring out a whole it would vary you know full orchestra or just a small ensemble or whatever and there would be an an audience there to observe the piece and they would get out their instruments and all this stuff but it would be silence it would just have rest written on the music and what i had 
heard as an explanation for this is that it's about experiencing, um, well, partly about experiencing silence, but also just kind of like full circle with meditation, um, you know, hearing like the awkward coughing and stuff in the audience and, and absorbing these ambient, you know, rustling and awkward sounds and, and assembling that is that is the unique and unreproducible musical experience. And kind of like going full circle with the Alan Watts stuff, it seems like the intent in that piece, at least, is about kind of just awareness of the sounds that are happening in that performance hall. Right, yeah. 433 is definitely the piece that most people know um, by John Cage, and that's sort of, I think, to his both his benefit and detriment. It's certainly the sort of the farthest outside of the box that he went. Um, and it is a very sort of mindful piece in that you are considering things that you probably always considered a disturbance or, or something that was detracting from your musical uh, experience whenever you're in a concert hall, whether it's people coughing or like an air conditioner kicking on or yeah. any number of things like that. And this piece kind of, it seeks to bring that to light, but it also, it's a, I mean, it's a statement piece, right? So the piece is best performed when it's done with a lot of pageantry. And what I mean by that is that if you go see a recital, right, let's say you're going to see a piano recital, and actually one of the most famous performances of this work is by David Tudor, the pianist David Tudor, mm-hmm. and he, he's a pretty well-known interpreter of Cage's music. But, you know, you come out and you sit at the piano, and you have to turn up the the cover that goes over top of the keys, right? And you set your music, and then starts a stopwatch and waits. And hmm. so the pageantry of him coming out is all part of the piece. It's like we're going to prepare ourselves now to listen to another piece of music, and that piece of music just happens to be whatever sounds are happening in the room. Yeah. So, because a lot of people criticize, you know, 433 as being like, well, I could just, wherever I am, I could just do that. And that's true. You could just do that wherever that, you that's are. That's the goal of meditation. And, and, <laughs> and you probably should do that wherever you are sometimes. But this is drawing a little bit more intention to the listening, right? By, by giving it the same pageantry that you have when you see an orchestra or you see a recital. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, know, I know we want to wrap up, but I feel like that something it just occurred to me to ask you of of all people is um i've noticed this more in visual art like painting modern painting and stuff like that and um when i worked at this art company for a while i started to learn a lot more about the current trends in art and the story behind the artists and all that stuff and um i got a lot a lot more interested in those certain genres um like pop surrealism is one of them um, but I feel like that's because I knew more about it. 
And as we're talking about John Cage, for example, the appreciation seems to occur when you have an understanding of the intent behind the music. But if I pay, you know, 45 bucks to see the Philharmonic play Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, I may not necessarily look up the historical context or the, you know, maybe the possible intents that Beethoven had with that piece. And I'm going because maybe I've heard it somewhere else and I'm, I'm aware of it. Or I just, you know, I'm there to absorb the the music and react in that moment Um to the music so anyway that's a long way to kind of set up this question of how do you think the backstory the explanation pairs with the performance itself like do you think people should go into cage's music having kind of pre-studied a little bit with an awareness of what's going to happen to them and that's how they appreciate it are are you able to appreciate new music without an explanation? Um, well, the short answer is yes, but after some practice. Uh-huh. So, I mean, it really does take going into a piece with an open mind um, and without any expectations to really enjoy it, I think. And I, and I say this also as like a trained classical musician that has played plenty of Beethoven and Brahms and Mahler and all the orchestral greats, that even when I go uh, to see the Chicago Symphony, for instance, I have an expectation of how good it's going to be. And then sometimes I'm let down, which is like uh, unbelievable to say. I'm let down by this marvelous like (laughs) 90-piece orchestra that's one of like the probably top five in the world, and I'm like let down. And that's because I walked in with expectations. And so Hmm. even at that level, you can be let down. And so my advice sort of with encountering new music or any music really is just to try to erase, try to purposely, maybe taking like a minute or two to really even ponder this before you begin the performance of thinking about all the things that you expect to happen in a musical performance or that you expect in a piece of music. And you don't have to be like a you know, a music aficionado to do this. Just think about like even pop music. Like what are the things I like about all the music I listen to? And now, and then like repeat to yourself a few times, like it doesn't have to be like that. Things don't have to be that way. So whatever happens next, I just, I need to just be comfortable with anything. And then you'll find that you actually will delight in some new sounds rather than being like confused by them. Like once you understand the point is not um, for you to understand it, it's just for you to experience it yeah. first. You know, you may decide you want to go deeper and understand it, but it's not necessarily there for you to like get the message on the first playthrough. And, you know, with a lot of stuff like Beethoven, that was, it's a little more evident what the emotional context of the piece is by listening to that. Yeah. Just like there's a lot of movies where you watch them and you say like, well, I know this is going to be a romantic comedy. Like I know what I'm getting into before I get into it. Yeah. And, and, but, I, and I will yeah. say, you know, um, I'm sure with uh, Beethoven, but definitely more so with Bach because I studied him, you, the appreciation for each of those pieces, like, explodes the more you learn about how it is assembled and the theory behind it and stuff like that. Um, but even without studying it, you can enjoy it for face value. Um, 
And I, I really like what you said about just going into it without the expectations or just priming yourself of it. Whatever you like about music, it doesn't have to be that way. And that's a nice little life metaphor. <laughs> yeah. Of, yeah. And when you're listening to music that you're not familiar with, trying to like com- continuously coming back to that same idea, like what do I like about what's happening right now? What do I not like about what's happening right now? And then trying not to worry about what it should be or shouldn't be, but just thinking about constantly what is happening. That's the best yeah. you can really do. And I'm guilty too of like, you know, prejudging music and being there and thinking like, oh, this is garbage. <laughs> but really, and sometimes, you know, there, of course, there has to be some sort of quality judgment in art, right? But just know that you're allowed to feel however you want about the music. And you're also, which also goes, it goes both ways. You're allowed to not like it, but you're also allowed to like it. Yeah. Just because it's different doesn't mean you're not allowed to like it. Definitely. And I think I kind of have that mindset of I'm maybe a little bit more open-minded with stuff where I just kind of, I look for enjoyment in odd places, but then there's plenty of genres that I just don't, can't get into. I don't know. But then you have like that one friend who, you know, like listens to metal and maybe you don't like metal initially, but they're like, oh, no, no, no. And they like try real hard to find something that you like. And eventually they do. And um, and that's that's pretty cool, too. Um, but I, I guess um, with a lot of new music or new art, if sometimes it feels kind of academic, like it's only speaking to a certain audience and you walk into the moma or something and you didn't take you know art history class you're not gonna enjoy it as the next person but right the one thing i'll say about that is most art is either designed for or accidentally uh inherits the characteristic of being of having multiplicitous levels so you can engage it at that highly academic level. You can engage it at the, it was flashed in front of my face for five seconds level. That's, those are both levels that you can experience the Mona Lisa at, right? Yeah. You can see the Mona Lisa for just a moment and have whatever feeling you have. It's pretty That's mad. perfectly relevant. That's a perfectly relevant way to experience the Mona Lisa. It's also perfectly relevant to spend your whole life studying Da Vinci's work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then putting it in that context. Both of those are valid, but neither one is better than the other. So if you think about it that way when you're going to music, yes, there is somebody who's experiencing this music with a whole different set of contexts than you are, but that doesn't make your way of experiencing it any less valid. Yeah. It was designed for both. So just let it be whatever one it is to you. That's my best advice. I love it. If you want to explain the the flute going on in the background. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, so both my fiance and I are musicians uh, and we both teach, uh, although my fiance teaches many lessons on uh, over the Internet on FaceTime. So in the next room, uh, you sporadically will hear her suddenly burst into some flute playing. Cool. Um, and it seems kind of out of context because she's been listening to her students and then she just demonstrates something suddenly. So <laughs> that's what that noise is. I think of it as just nice little interludes in between. So yeah. yeah, that's right. All right. Well, yeah, good talking to you. Good hanging out again. 
hopefully yeah, this is great we got to do this again yeah i'm glad you enjoyed your first ever podcast experience I, I have to turn it i have to like carry a card now don't i or like maybe i have to turn in my card it's like my podcast v card yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> all right thanks rob